welcome back to Sick. Today's episode is about Candy Montgomery, the murderess turned mental health counselor. So I actually remember reading a book about this when I was in high school called Evidence of Love by John Bloom and uh, some other guy and being absolutely blown away by the story. There's also um, a couple of shows on TV right now. There's a show on Hulu called Candy. It features Jessica Biel. If you have HBO Max, there is a mini series on right now called Love and Death, and I highly recommend it. It is so good. You should all watch it. I personally like Love and Death better because I felt like they integrated and shared more of the details of the book, like the story about Alan winning a wheat competition his concern about Betty's infidelity being a calculated maneuver to control him, um, and a whole bunch of other stuff. Uh, So anyway, this story is about two couples who were casual friends who belonged to the same church, Alan and Betty, and Pat and Candy. So Candy was set up on a date with Pat, and that's how she met him. They didn't live close to each other at first, so they were pen pals for a little bit and they just developed feelings for each other. And Pat told Candy that she needed to come to Dallas so they could spend more time together. And the book, Evidence of Love, contains several love letters between the two of them. And it's pretty sweet to see how they began, but bittersweet really, because it's sad when you realize how things turned out. So, as I mentioned a second ago, Candy and Betty were church friends, but it was a pretty superficial friendship. Candy thought Betty was cold and rigid, and um, Candy and Pat were self-described agnostics, and they really only attended church to give their kids some sort of a spiritual base. Candy wasn't really very interested in religion as much as she was interested in a community where she and her family could belong. Her close friend, Jackie, happened to be the minister of the church that Candy and Pat belonged to. Jackie preached a lot about love and just loving people, and that's really what Candy appreciated about her the most, Um, that she was more interested in unifying people than participating in dividing. So Candy and Pat lived in a pretty rural area in Wiley, Texas, which is near Plano and McKinney, and they were involved with their local church. Candy played on the church volleyball team with their friend Alan, Um, and in the book, uh, in fact, the book describes a scenario when Candy knew she wanted to hook up with Alan. They were playing volleyball and they collided into each other, and the book describes that Candy was extremely attracted to his masculine, sweaty scent. Maybe it was pheromones, probably, I don't know. And she was just kind of tired with her marriage. She felt like she and her husband were growing apart. He didn't really see her as a woman anymore. He didn't seem to take an interest in the things that she was interested in. Um, Like if he asked her to, you know, read something that he had written, which he really didn't, but he, he was really bright and he wrote a bunch of stuff. I'm not sure if they were articles or whatever, but um, she would read his writings and she felt like he might not care for her the same way because he didn't seem interested in reading anything that she wrote and asked him to read. Um, So yeah, so she began flirting with the idea of having an affair and she mentioned it to her best friends, Sherry Kleckler and also her minister, Jackie. Jackie didn't condone it, 
but she gave her the space to make her own decisions. And Jackie did tell her, you know, nothing good is going to come of this, but you know, she let Candy do her own thing. Meanwhile, Jackie herself was actually going through a divorce and she had been offered a position at the Wesley Foundation in Wichita Falls, Kansas, which would give her a step up in the career ladder, I guess, with the church. I don't know. Um, And she previously said she wasn't going to take the job, but then she decided finally to take it. Candy was really bummed, but she was supportive. Um, And Candy approached Alan one night after church and just told him that she'd been thinking about him a lot and she just wanted him to know. And if you watch Love and Death on HBO Max, they basically depict exactly what happened. Alan didn't really bite, but he did think about it for several days afterwards. Now, Alan was in a stuck place with his wife, Betty. She was trying to get pregnant with their second child and their sex became almost mechanical because of her attempts to get pregnant and, you know, have to do it at this time because that's what I'm most likely, I'm most fertile, blah, blah, blah. Um, so it began to feel a lot more like a chore and not, you know, something fun. Compared to Candy's fun personality, Alan began to imagine that sex with her would be much more passionate and fulfilling. Additionally, Betty had really terrible postpartum after their first daughter, Alyssa, was born. And she dealt with feelings of insecurity after she wasn't able to lose the baby weight very easily. In the book, with respect to uh, Betty's marriage to Alan, Betty honestly sounded really annoying, but it was clear that she was suffering from mental health issues at the time. Um, Because growing up, she was really popular and always active on student council. Betty received a lot of attention from guys because she was cute and had a nice personality. She just seemed a little, you know, kind of like a go-getter in the sense that when she set her mind to something that she wanted to do she went ahead and did it um, and she seemed real confident in herself but when she was married to Alan she just became incredibly needy she wanted Alan home with her all the time she needed his constant reassurance that he loved her and that he was still attracted to her it just sounded like she desperately needed therapy she frequently would call Alan at work which obviously annoyed him because she would even call to ask silly questions that could have waited for a better time. And um, he traveled a lot, which she resented because she just felt alone. And she hated that he had had to travel for work. And every time he left, she would grow despondent. Um, In fact, one time his employer sent him to program a computer system in Switzerland And she was so upset about it that she called Alan's boss and complained. Like, I cannot even imagine doing that to somebody ever. Like, that's just so embarrassing. I would be furious if somebody I was with did that to me. Anyhow, no matter what Alan said to, you know, assuage her fears, it just was never enough. So, You know, there was just an obvious open space for somebody like Candy to sort of worm her way into Alan's life. So Candy and Alan had another chance to talk alone after church one night. And though he was frustrated by the draining situation he was stuck in with Betty, Alan really wasn't sure that he could have an affair. 
But confusingly, after he told her he couldn't have an affair, he gently kissed her on the lips and left. So, of course, she was really confused and she was like, if he can't have an affair, why did he kiss me? And obviously, you guys, the answer is because actions speak louder than words. The fact is, he really did want to kiss her and he did want to have an affair. He just was scared. So, despite what Alan said to Candy that night, over the coming days and weeks, he began to open up to the idea of an affair, obviously. It took some time and planning, but they did end up engrossed in an extramarital dalliance and they began meeting regularly for lunch and sex candy had and, and alan they made a deal with each other that feelings wouldn't get involved and it would just be sex and lunch but i mean obviously it never plays out like that sometime soon after the initiation of their affair alan's wife betty got pregnant A few months later, Alan took a job and told Candy, you know, we're not going to be able to see each other that much anymore. So, I mean, they met a couple more times. Candy tried to keep him wrapped around, wrapped in the affair. She would tell him she loved him and she didn't think she could go on without him. Which I'm sure was like the last fucking thing he wanted to hear because Betty was constantly saying that to him. Like, God, how annoying. Talk about feeling claustrophobic. Since Alan and Betty were still not as close as Betty wanted them to be, Betty asked Alan to go with her to an upcoming weekend retreat for couples that the church uh, sponsored, and it was called Marriage Encounter. So when Alan relayed this to Candy, Candy was a lot less enthusiastic about it because this is exactly the kind of complicated stuff Candy wanted to avoid. And she told Alan that she needed to call it off. They didn't call it off quite yet. They were still in a weird sort of back and forth. Um, But Alan did tell Candy that he wanted to try Marriage Encounter. And Candy told him that if he did, you know, go on this Marriage Encounter weekend with Betty, the two of them would no longer be able to engage in their affair. So after Alan and Betty's weekend at Marriage Encounter, they seem to have gotten much closer and their baby Betty, I mean, Betty, Bethany would be born soon. Uh, This weekend did not completely fix everything, but it did bring them a lot closer. Unfortunately, Alan continued to see Candy even after marriage encounter. Some time passed and baby Bethany was born. The relationship between Alan and Candy was deteriorating and Alan had actually canceled two scheduled rendezvous with Candy. And before... um, meeting up and spending so much time having sex which was the okay sorry so he canceled on a couple of scheduled rendezvous with her and then the next time they did end up hanging out and they spent so much time having sex that alan couldn't perform with betty later so the backstory on that particular situation is that alan and betty hadn't been having regular sex anyway like at first they couldn't because you know she was postpartum and then you know they had just gotten so used to not having sex that they just sort of stopped um so this was the one time that Betty actually initiated and she was a little aggressive about it but he like couldn't so he rebuffed her and then she like lost it she became despondent she insisted Alan didn't love her he wasn't attracted to her because she was quote fat after having Bethany. And this experience rattled Alan so much 
that he scheduled a time for he and Candy to meet and he told Candy that he wanted to end it because um, he was just afraid that their affair had affected him to the degree that he wasn't even sure that he loved Betty anymore. So still the affair between Candy and Alan wasn't over just yet. Then um, Betty found a lump in her breast And so Alan felt like he needed to stop dallying around with Candy and focus on his marriage. So he wrote a letter to Candy and he ended it for sure. And he, he and Candy all in all were involved with each other for about a year before it was over. After Candy and Alan ended things, Candy met a guy named Richard who was DTF and pursued her for an affair. But Candy broke this affair off after just a few weeks. She thought it might be a good idea to try marriage encounter with Pat, so she suggested it because it seemed to work so well for Alan and Betty. So they did go, and it seemed that they had an amazing time and they got closer to each other. Um, but after that weekend, they sort of fell off the wagon and they stopped doing all of the maintenance stuff that the program asked each couple to do to remain close and continue strengthening their bonds. So. In January of 1980, Betty invited Candy and Pat to dinner to discuss marriage encounter, and Candy, thinking it might have been a good opportunity for her to get over Alan once and for all, um, decided to agree. So they went, and it was a little weird, but, you know, it was fine. Um, In April of 1980, Candy was at a church retreat, and Pat was a little bit lonely, so he wanted to reread the love letters from the summer that he and Candy met. And he went to look for all the love letters, but he couldn't find them. And he, like, looked everywhere. So then he remembered that sometimes Candy would keep things in her dresser. So he went back to their room. He looked in her dresser, and under her bras and underwear, he found a letter dated October of 1979, addressed to Candy, but with no return address on it. And he read the whole letter and he saw, love, Alan. And then he read the whole letter again and the letter outright mentioned the affair, the hotel that they went to, the lunches they had, the fact that Candy made the lunches, how he loved her. And Pat was absolutely devastated. So Pat called Candy's best friend, Sherry Kleckler, and he asked, is this affair really over? And Sherry said, yes, it was. And she tried to emphasize that it was meaningless and even though really it wasn't. And um, she tried to say, you know, it was just a mistake. It was meaningless. Candy just, you know, she lost her mind for a minute. So anyway, Pat asked Sherry not to mention that he had called her and Sherry agreed. Then Pat wrote Candy a letter taking responsibility for her seeking affection elsewhere and he also brought her flowers. So Sherry called Candy and clued her in that Pat knew about the affair. And so Candy was of course a little nervous. Pat later confronted Candy and gave her a a bouquet of flowers and a letter just before she was going to bed. He gave her some time to read it and he asked her to come downstairs when she was done reading it to discuss, but instead she just stayed in bed sobbing because she was so ashamed that 
she had had this affair and that he found out about it. So after that, they basically, um, Pat blamed himself. Like he basically said, you know, it's my fault. I wasn't affectionate enough with you. Of course you went elsewhere. And so after that, they tried to work on their marriage and they even planned a second honeymoon. But for Betty's sake, because Betty was, you know, the only one who brought as least, at least as far as Candy knew at the time, Betty was the only person that didn't know about the affair between Alan and Candy. So Candy was still keeping up appearances and not letting on that anything had ever happened between she and Alan. So now we are going to talk about June 13th, 1980, the day of the murder. So Candy would often help Betty with Alyssa since Betty's oldest daughter was about six or seven and Candy's daughter was around the same age. She, uh, uh, Candy's daughter's name was Jennifer and Jennifer and Alyssa were good friends and they frequently had sleepovers at Candy's house. And the night of June 13th, 1980 was no exception. Candy was supposed to be at the church, but, um, in the morning. So we're starting in the morning. So Candy was supposed to be at the church in the morning and she was, but then she snuck out like around 10, 1030 and stopped by Betty's house to pick up Alyssa's bathing suit because if Alyssa was going to spend the night at her house, she still had to go to swim practice and Candy would take her, but she needed to get the bathing suit. And then after swim practice and everything, they were going to go to dinner and then they were going to go see the Star Wars movie. So, um, Candy stopped by Betty's house to pick up Alyssa's bathing suit and to ask Betty if it would be okay if they took Alyssa with them to see Star Wars that evening and keep her another night. So, I'm going to switch gears on you for a quick second. Back at the church, there was so much activity on this particular day that nobody noticed when Candy wasn't there until Ian, her five-year-old, was to perform a Noah's puppet show with stick puppets that they had made. And one of the other teachers named Marie noticed that Candy wasn't there. So back at Betty's house, Betty had a few things on her mind and she asked Candy to sit and talk for a minute. So she confirmed and asked Candy if she and Alan were having an affair. So at this time, Candy and Alan had stopped seeing each other for months. So Candy said no at first, but Betty pressed her and said, but did you? So Candy admitted to it, but she couldn't convince Betty that it was really over between she and Alan. So according to Candy, Betty left the room and came back with an ax and tried to attack Candy a few times. She took a few swipes at her. So as she was coming for Candy with the ax, she reportedly shushed Candy and it came, it came out later that Candy was triggered by the shushing. And um, I guess that is when Candy was able to wrestle the axe away from Betty and use it against Betty herself. Candy would later say that she dissociated and didn't even realize that she was hitting Betty over and over and over again. One of the articles that I read about this case said that by the time Montgomery left the house, she had struck Betty Gore with an axe a total of 41 times. Yeah, I have some thoughts about that. 
So anyway, um, one of Betty's neighbors had a little girl named Tina who was five years old and Tina's grandma happened to be watching her that day and gave Tina permission to walk down to Alyssa's house to see if Alyssa could play. She could hear Alyssa's baby sister in the house crying, so she assumed, you know, everybody's home. She rang the doorbell, she knocked, she rang again, she knocked, and there was no answer, so little Tina just went back home. By this time, Candy had been gone for about at least an hour and a half, um, and she was still at Betty's house. This entire time, Betty's daughter was alone and screaming in her crib. So Candy went back to her own house and stripped her bloody clothes and left them to soak in some soapy water. Then she took a shower and changed her clothes and she bandaged she bandaged up her cut toe because I guess during the fight she cut her toe and she had a gash on her head. And she put some sneakers on, which she almost never did, to conceal her cut up toe. And then she went back to church. By this time, Candy's kids were asking teachers at the church, where, where's mom? So around noon, Candy returned to the church and made up a story to explain her tardiness. And she said that her watch had stopped and she lost track of time. Interestingly, she actually told another churchgoer that she was late because she went to Alyssa's, uh, um, Betty's house to get Alyssa's swimming suit. And also that her watch stopped. It just seems to me like you would want to avoid having it like having speaking like you don't want to talk about Betty at all right because right I don't know I just feel like why would you mention Betty at all why didn't you just say you had some errands to run and your watch stopped anyway do you girl so this same lady at church who um noticed that um or or who said that Betty had, uh, oh my God, I'm getting everything mixed up. Okay. This churchgoer who said that um, Candy had told her that she went to go get the swimsuit from Betty's house and that her watch stopped, her name was also Betty. And this Betty, Betty number two, she actually noticed that Candy was wearing sneakers because she always wore rubber sandals in the summer and had been actually wearing sandals that morning and she thought it was strange that she changed her shoes. So Candy gathered her kids and they went to buy Father's Day cards and then they all went home and Candy promised the kids that they would go to the movies. She called her husband, Pat, who worked with Alan at Texas Instruments and she asked him to make sure that he got enough money to take Alyssa to the movies with them. And Candy basically acted like nothing happened all day and just carried on about her day, running errands, taking the kids to the pool, and whatever. So Alan, as I mentioned earlier, traveled a lot for work, and it was a major sticking point with Betty. She hated that he traveled so much, and she just she was very insecure and could not tolerate being alone. And she also suffered from depression. So... They had recently, like I said, gone on a marriage encounter and it went well. They planned a romantic trip as a second honeymoon. And after trying to reach Betty all day, like around seven o'clock, Alan called Candy's house to see if she knew anything about Betty because Betty wasn't answering the phone. Candy pretended that she had only seen Betty for a minute and that Betty seemed fine when she had seen her. So Alan, um, who was in St. Paul, Minnesota for work, 
called his neighbor, Richard Parker, who was actually his real estate agent and that had sold him the house that he and Betty lived in. Now, Richard lived right across the street and he asked Richard, you know, can you just go over to the house and check up on Betty because I've been calling and calling and calling. She's just not answering the phone. I'm getting concerned. Richard happened to be by himself with his little kids because his wife was out, um, you know, with her friends playing bridge or whatever. So he was like, you know, I really can't leave the house because I got my kids with me, but sure, I'll try to run over real quick. So, um, you know, Alan went to dinner while he was waiting for, to hear back from Richard and he was preoccupied all evening, just tensely waiting to hear back. Richard finally called and said that he knocked real hard and nobody answered the door. But Alan asked Richard, you know, for the number to the Wiley police department so that he could put in a call. He was really concerned, obviously. So after a little bit, he called Richard back and he was like, you know, can you please just go check the house one more time? Because maybe she fell or something. I don't know. Just check the doors and stuff. Check the windows. And um, so at this time, Richard was like, okay, so he didn't really want to leave his kids alone. So he told Alan, you know, let me just call my wife, have her come home. And then, you know, as soon as she gets here, I'll come over. I'll do a more thorough search. So his wife comes back and um, he, you know, is ready to go over there. But of course he's concerned by Alan's panic and Richard's wife insisted that he not go to Alan's house alone. So he called two other neighbors to come over with him, Jerry and Lester. So they all went over to the house and they let themselves in through the garage. Another neighbor, Lester came out and he and Jerry went around the backyard to see if they could get in that way. Richard went out to the the front door. I'm sorry, Richard went to the front door and he realized that the door was unlocked. Now, mind you, this poor infant baby has been in this house literally all day alone since her mom died at like noon and she's probably starving and she's, you know, soiled herself, I'm sure. So they went into the house and they called for Betty and on the way through the house, they noticed blood on the floor. They, of course, found the baby in her crib, soiled, and so Richard took her out of there he got had his wife clean her up and watch her and he went back and the other guys and he were just checking the house so Lester opened the door to the utility room and noticed a pool of blood and he just shut the door he didn't even dare to go a step further he later would report that what he did see was blood as high as the ceiling blood everywhere and he could see Betty's body he didn't dare look close enough, but he could see that her body was there and that she was obviously dead. So while the guys were still there, Alan called and Jerry took the phone and, you know, told Alan, you know, it's not good, but the baby's okay. So Jerry told Alan, you know, he didn't know what happened, but it looked like Betty had been shot. And Alan was like, shot? What? Like, we don't even own a gun. So he asked if they called the police um, and they did. And a medical examiner would later find that Betty had been hit 41 times with an axe and also said that though her heart was beating for 40 of those hits, she was likely unconscious, obviously. So the police and the coroner uh, commented also that the murder was so vicious, they supposed it was a sex-related crime, which to me is an interesting comment because they really weren't that far off. 
At first, when Candy was questioned by police, and she was questioned by them because um, the police were asking Alan, you know, who do you know that Betty had seen the day that she was killed? And he was like, well, Candy Montgomery. And so they were like, oh, okay, interesting. So he didn't mention anything about the affair. And when they spoke to Candy, they questioned her and she didn't tell them anything about the affair. So the police brought Candy in a second time and they told her, well, Alan told us everything, even though he hadn't. And this detective named Detective Murphy started aggressively accusing her of murdering Betty. And then they asked her to take a polygraph and she agreed. So Candy went home upset that the police considered her a suspect and she got in touch with an attorney named Rob Udishin and he called the police and canceled her polygraph. The police did have a bloody thumbprint and the press jumped on that detail, assuming that the fingerprint rendered this an open and shut case. So for some reason, even though her lawyer had told the cops she wouldn't take the polygraph, he apparently consented and allowed her to take the polygraph at some time uh, because she did. She took the polygraph at some point. Um, Unfortunately for Candy, the police had enough information to arrest her and that's just what they did. In the press, she was often seen appearing as though she were smirking and people generally didn't like that. They felt that she seemed two-faced. It was a pretty crazy court case and um, Candy maintained that she killed Betty in self-defense and she had hired a civil law attorney who also happened to be a member of the same church as she and Betty named Don Crowder who sadly killed himself later and a defense attorney Robert Udishin to help clear her name and one of the articles that I read this was on grunge.com explained that the defense attorney Robert Udishin quote put a psychiatrist, Dr. Fred Faison, on the stand. Faison was also a clinical hypnotist who examined Candy Montgomery extensively, wrote Texas Monthly. Faison attested that Betty had triggered a traumatic childhood memory in Candy by telling her to shh. And this trigger had sparked a type of dissociative reaction, which caused Montgomery to lose all awareness and control. So the defense attorneys did what they were hired to do and the jury acquitted Candy. One juror named Alice Doherty Rowley told the Dallas Morning News, quote, we determined it never had a bearing the amount of times that the axe was swung at Betty, never had a bearing on the verdict at all, whether it was one gunshot or a thousand whacks. So I have a personal issue with that kind of reasoning because I feel like, okay, if it's self-defense, totally get it. But 41 fucking whacks, dude, like you stop once you've disabled your attacker and you get the fuck out of there. You don't like keep going. But I guess the um, defense of dissociative reaction that caused her to lose all awareness and control was definitely enough for reasonable doubt. So now Candy apparently works. So after uh, after the trial, she and Alan, they were married for, I, I don't know how long after, but they were still married for a little bit. And then they did get divorced after that. And then um, she became a mental health counselor, which is really wild to me. So yeah, I don't know. 
it's a it's a crazy story and I'm sorry this wasn't quite as long as my previous episodes but I hope you enjoyed this story and I highly recommend that you guys go watch Love and Death on HBO Max or Candy on Hulu. Love and Death is a much much better show I will say and Elizabeth Olsen is phenomenal. She's really really talented. She did wonderful. And, um, yeah, I also recommend that you listen to or read Evidence of Love by John Bloom because that is also, it's a phenomenal book. And there's so many more details in there that I can't even tell you because it would just take forever and ever. And I don't know if I'm going to do these for one whole hour anymore. So, yeah, I think I can do a shorter, quicker episode for you guys and hopefully y'all enjoy it and if not you can just let me know and I will make it longer next time please the people so anyway that's it for this time I hope you enjoyed hearing about Candy Montgomery the murderess turned mental health counselor and I hope you'll stick around for our next episode which I don't even know it's going to be about so I'm thinking it's going to be about Colleen Stan the girl in the box so yeah that's a really fucked up story too so anyway talk to you later have a fabulous couple of weeks and i'll see you soon bye hello again so remember how i said that i knew that this was a short episode and I just wanted to find out if you all thought it was too short well you can do that by leaving me a little voice note and the link to it is in the link on our Instagram page my Instagram page I'm a single entity there's no our there's no we so anyway yeah if you click that link and see episode four there's a link in there that says let me know if this show was too short for you so do let me know and i will make longer shows thanks bye